Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is the idea that UFOs are nuts and bolts craft on the way out? Are there connections between them and other paranormal phenomena? Where do you turn if you feel you have been abducted? Well, welcome to the 692nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno as we broadcast live from the 2018 Saucer Symposium sponsored by Granite Sky Services at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratham, New Hampshire in this, our 10th year on the air. Now, this event benefits the Exeter Kiwanis Club's fund for the annual Exeter UFO Festival later this year, which in turn benefits local children's charities, so thank you all for your support. Now, on our panel today are UFO, cryptid, and all-around paranormal researchers, authors, broadcasters, and speakers here at the Saucer Symposium. Now, I'll pass the mic around so the panelists can briefly introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Carolyn LaRock. I'm with the Lakes Region Disclosure Support Network, and we're located in Guilford, New Hampshire. Hi, my name is Pat Lewis, and I'm a science fiction artist, and um, I will be giving a presentation later this afternoon. Hi, my name is Alexander Petikov. I'm a filmmaker, and I'm into all sorts of cryptids and paranormal entities. I showed an episode of a documentary I've been working on on the Lake Champlain monster last night. I have a little table down there so you can come hang out later. Hi, my name is Steve LaPlume. Uh, I'm a Rendlesham Forest incident uh, witness. My name is Bill Brock. I host a television show on the Discovery Network called Monsters Underground. I also make films such as uh, Haunted New England, Abducted New England, and Sasquatch New England. So I focus on the weird right here in New England. Hi, I'm Andy Kitt. I'm a psychologist, and I manage the KRI center that we're at. Hi, I'm Valerie LaFasso. I am an empathic medium, an author, and co-founder of the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies. Hi, I'm Mike Stevens, founder of Granite Sky Services and co-founder of the KRI Center. Hi, I'm Kristen Capucci. I'm a psychic medium out of Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, I'm Phyllis Edgerly-Ring. I'm the author of The Munich Girl, a novel which includes Ava Brown as a character. My presentation here explored the many inexplicable events that led to that book. Hi, I'm Marina Rose, and I'm here from Dover, New Hampshire. I experienced a UFO encounter a couple of years ago, and it's been a life-changing experience. Thanks for having me. Okay, there we have great panel, and we certainly want to. You can come in. We certainly want to welcome our, our live audience today. Uh, it's only the fourth time I think we we worked with a live audience, but thank you all for being here. Okay. Okay, let's begin with our questions. Uh, if anyone from the audience has one, uh, please stand up to the mic and uh, take your chances. All right. Well, I see no takers at the moment, so we'll start with our questions from our listeners that have come in over Facebook. We have a question from Tasha in Columbia, Maryland. This is for anyone on the panel about UFOs. On Paul and Ben's show, I have heard people like Ted Phillips say there are fewer UFOs that look like real spacecraft or timecraft, interesting term she uses, and more like balls of light or probes. For whatever reason, have the aliens adopted NASA's policy of unmanned probes as opposed to more expensive manned craft? In parentheses, my brother works for NASA and says probably yes. So if anyone uh, would like to address that question, uh, 
Just put your hand over. Okay. Andy's going to tackle that one. Andy Kitt. Uh, I just have a question. Is How can you tell the difference from outside the craft whether or not it's manned? Uh, if you don't know the size of the pilot, uh, you have no way of judging it, even if you know the size of the craft, uh, how much mechanics have to be there. Uh, I don't know that that's really a, a fair question uh, without knowing more about the craft itself. Okay, you're in trouble now, Tasha. <laughs> Anyway, uh, just to a little bit of background, Ted Phillips has been on the show, and that's probably where Tasha heard him. Ted has been uh, in the business, uh, if so to speak, for many, many years. He's about the same vintage as our good friend Stanton Friedman, and he has probably the greatest database of UFO landing physical evidence uh, probably in the world. And he says that over the last uh, particularly 20, 15 to 20 years, the nature of UFOs that he is seeing uh, is less like nuts and bolts craft and more like these balls of light. That's probably where Tasha heard that. So, um, I, Would anyone else like to tackle that? Bill Brock. Um, I actually experienced one of these balls of light uh, in uh, well, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, uh, where the Mothman was uh, thought to have been, been seen. So uh, I can say from my experience that I am not 100% sure that these balls of light are craft at all. Um, science would have us say that they're probably ball lightning or something of that uh, nature. Um, I think the crafts that have been reported to me uh, are actual crafts. Uh, there's not been a lot of reports about balls of light that have taken people away or even like somehow made contact. And I think that's important because typically the balls of light are separate from a craft. So uh, we don't know enough about UFOs, aliens, and, and that sort of thing to even make the jump to say that these balls of light are craft. You know, so I don't think we know what they are. There is all sorts of speculation on this, uh, all the way down to the, some of these balls of light being living things. Okay, Andy has another comment. I also want, balls of light were reported uh, in World War II prior to the UFO experience, uh, the Kenneth Arnold's uh, UFO, UFO sighting to begin with. So they really could be separate phenomena just being observed in different ways or you know, whatever the tendencies are. Sure. Uh, we have a comment from Alec. Yeah, I think that perhaps there's, uh, I think when I think of the balls of light, they're usually seen at lower sort of elevations as opposed to the crafts. I mean, I can just think of just a couple of weeks ago in Pennsylvania, we were hanging out in this uh, in this sort of triangle area, and I turned around and saw a red ball of light in the woods. It was just like a little radio light, but it was just in the tree line, and it was just there for a couple of seconds. And you know, I wouldn't have considered that a craft. It was pretty small object from what I could tell, and it was at a fairly low to the ground sort of level as opposed to something that would have been up in the the sky. Yeah, I saw that too, actually. Uh, so, you know, it's one of the, they're more common down there than birds. Uh, ben is here, but I'm Paul, by the way, in case anybody didn't know. Uh, ben is here as well, but he's uh, got his hands full at these uh, on location broadcasts with the board, so he sends his love to everyone, I'm sure. Okay. Yes, and we have Steve LaPlume to answer this question as well. well actually, I, I almost have a question. Is it possible these could be one and the same? Because at Rendlesham, they were talking about there were three balls of light that came together and formed a craft. So, who knows? <laughs> exactly. It, uh, sometimes the more you find out, the less you know. Uh, Carolyn has a comment. Yeah, there are also a lot of reports, even from myself, that um, we'll be out um, sky watching and stargazing and we'll see stars and 
all of a sudden you'll see that one is moving. And when you actually do some of the uh, contact protocol where you're trying to, you know, just communicate or get a sign if that's a UFO or if it's not a UFO, a lot of times you'll get, it'll come in like closer and it's hard to judge size and um, sometimes they'll flash and then they'll be gone and we have lots of reports of that too so we have to distinguish if it's something that we thought was a star and then it moves and it's not a star is it a ball lightning is it a plasma orb I mean our government has uh, plasma droids that you know are often mistaken for plasma orbs or light beings and other things like that so I think um, there's probably multiple different Things that we're seeing, and they're all be they're all being called light orbs, um, but they're probably at least three different things we're talking about. Okay. Um, any further comments on that? I did just briefly, uh, when I started out in the paranormal field almost 50 years ago, we didn't have digital media. There were was film and negatives and this sort of thing, and uh, we were. Um, not uh, we're not we were not acquiring in photographs these orbs as we see them today and there is there is an issue with photography and uh, the digital mode because uh, of digital devices will interpret dust and little balls of, you know, little light that's coming from a, a natural from an uh, artificial source this sort of thing just just things to be aware of so uh, in a way it's kind of complicated things uh, a bit Okay, well, let's move on <coughs> excuse me, to a question from Erica in Richfield, Minnesota. Can anyone talk about any combined Bigfoot and UFO sighting they have had personally? Interesting question. All right, there's, I'm getting blank stares more out. All right. The only, I, I wish Ronnie LeBlanc was here. Yeah, Ron, yeah, Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie, author of the book Monsterland, the tremendous book about the uh, one of the triangle areas we're very interested in, which is up around Lemonster, Massachusetts, in west, the west central part of that beautiful state. And there are uh, a lot of correlations that he has made between Bigfoot and orange balls of light, particularly. And also in Pennsylvania. And, of course, Alec, you were just talking about our, our Pennsylvania Triangle case. Uh, we were just there two weeks ago, and there, all, there were, we had a, a town hall meeting, and we had like 30 people show up. All but two agreed to be interviewed on camera, and then you and, and, and one of our other team members, great friend, were interviewing a whole family, three generations of a family, all of whom had seen Bigfoot and strange lights, among other things. So whether there was some correlation, I don't know. Uh, Ronnie, has, if I may speak for him briefly, has pointed out that he's seen orange balls of light in the sky, and then all, then all of a sudden there are Bigfoot sightings reported. So is the implication Bigfoot is traveling in some sort of UFO, or is it, does it turn into the ball of light, or is it a multiverse thing where the uh, the the membrane, as a physicist might say, is engulfing, I mean, he's going from world to world, who knows? I mean, the more you, you find out, the more you realize you don't know. So, yes, uh, Bill Brock is going to respond. So I, I've been blessed enough to uh, basically travel the the country and talk to more eyewitnesses of Bigfoot sightings than I can even count. I, I just, honest to God, don't even know how many people I, I've talked to that have seen Bigfoot. And I can literally count on one hand how many have told me there were uh, a supernatural element to their sighting. Not, it doesn't happen very often. It, it, I, I am not convinced that these 
things are connected. I truly believe that Bigfoot is a Neanderthal human hybrid because the majority of, of white people in this room are up to, I've even heard of as high as 7% Neanderthal. So the question is, is where's the Neanderthal with 7% human DNA? Uh, most people say that Neanderthals, or we have up to about 4% Neanderthal DNA within us. So still, at the end of the day, we are Neanderthals. So where is that Neanderthal that's human? I think that is what Bigfoot is. And I don't think it's supernatural in any way, shape, or form. It's a real living being. Okay, well, there you have it from Bill Brock. Uh, I won't comment on the amount of Neanderthal in uh, some of us. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I would ask, just before we get back to your I would ask this, now that I have you sort of as a captive audience here, one of the questions that arises in an area like the Pennsylvania Triangle is that you have, a, uh, it's rural, sure, it's farming, but there, the woodlots are maybe at the most 10 acres. And a sustainable population, so biologists have told me, would have to be about 500. You know, if this, this is just a, an ordinary, not ordinary, but it's certainly a, a physical creature without any kind of other bells and whistles from the multiverse point of view. Where would this creature live? in an area like that. Okay, please. All right. Okay, well, we'll give Andy okay. the Sure. Uh, first, uh, what we do know about Bigfoot is they have tremendous ranges. So a f- population of 500 over 50, 100 square miles is reasonable. Uh, and i got to tell you, 500 is kind of extreme. There was a point in humanity where geneticists tell us the entire human race uh, was extinct except for 30 breeding couples. So we survived and took over the planet. Uh, i got to think 500 is an extreme example. Uh, yeah, I'm totally on board with that, buddy. Uh, so I think that uh, there are small family groups of these things living in seclusion all over North America. And, and when I say small family groups, I, I literally mean three to five people, or if you want to call them that, three to five of these creatures in each little pod. And, you know, we went to war with these Neanderthal, you know, what, 35,000 years ago? And they learned at that point that their existence depended on their ability to stay stealthy. They had to absolutely be hidden at all times, or they were going to be wiped out. That's what we do as modern humans. We kill everything. I don't know why, but we just do. And so at the end of the day, I think that these things understood that. I think they are just as intelligent as you and I. I think they are are possibly even more intelligent because we know that Neanderthals had larger brains. We know that they were uh, stronger. They were um, possibly even more athletic. But, you know, we had something, and I don't even know if anyone really can tell us what that is. We had something that set us apart from Neanderthals and let us basically either breed them out or just destroy them. Something, Something made us more powerful than they are. But I think they realized that, and I think they were able to become stealthy in order to basically survive as long as they have. Okay, thank you, Bill. Uh, just from that point of view, uh, it was pointed out to me, you know, how often do you see a bear? And we know bears, you know, and they, they know how to be stealthy. So, very good point. Okay, uh, probably before, uh, Alec has a question here, actually a point, but we have an audience question. We'll take... Uh, first, and then and then we'll uh, get back to the panel. Hi, my name is my name is Ken. I'm from Southern Maine. This is directed to Bill Brock. Could you give us an update on your latest uh, documentary coming out? Uh, yeah. So Ken, as you know, you are very much in that documentary. So uh, I have a documentary that's. Uh, <laughs> 
that he's he's referring to. So it's called Abducted New England, and basically it's a collection of stories of people who believe that they have been abducted or have uh, experienced something to do with uh, extraterrestrials. And we are right in the middle of editing right now. Uh, it looks as though we're going to be done by the 5th of next month. And at that point, we're going to be putting it out uh, all over the place. And you'll have a chance, as everyone will, to see it then. And so um, we're hoping we're going to have it actually out for sale by the 15th. That's that's our realistic goal. Okay, we'll get back to Alex Petikoff. Uh, one of our previous uh, questions uh, had a response to the... Uh, you can tell us what it's a response to. Sure, yeah, it's kind of in response to the Bigfoot thing. I think this is something I recommend people to do. This is really interesting, but if you just go on Google Images and search average rainfall you know, per region in the United States, look at a map of America, and you'll see where the heaviest amounts of rainfall are distributed throughout the country, and then look up a map of Bigfoot sightings across the United States. And if you overlay those two maps, they line up almost perfectly. You have the entire Pacific Northwest from Washington down to California, which is the rainforest, and that's where typically most of the sightings happen. You have pockets in the Rocky Mountains in Utah and Colorado, and then the sightings suddenly drop off in Kansas and Iowa, places like that. And then you get towards the Appalachians in the eastern part of the country, and the sightings pick right up. So if this was something that could just come in and out of uh, portals or whatever, you would expect maybe people in Brooklyn or places like that to have sightings, whereas typically they only happen in wilderness regions or civilization that kind of abuts these wilderness regions throughout the country. I mean, Maine, New Hampshire, plenty of these areas have sightings, but that's something I really urge people to do is check that out because it's really interesting. I mean, other wildlife also live in these areas. This is where the black bears live, and like Paul said, you know, there's so many of them out there, but how often do you really see a black bear? So if you had something even rarer that was smarter than any known animal, I could stay hidden pretty easily. So, yep. Okay, thank you all very much. Uh, if we have no more questions from the audience, uh, we will... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Give uh, Valerie a chance. Thanks. I just wanted to um, add a perspective. Um, I think Bill had said that he doesn't believe that they're, that Bigfoots are necessarily a supernatural being, that they're a real physical being. But in my personal experience, I don't think that, well, I think that something that is a real physical being can also be supernatural and have abilities that are beyond our understanding. Okay. Uh, any other panelists uh, have a comment on that issue? Seems to uh, have risen some interest, uh, certainly. Okay. All right, Kristen? No? Okay. Okay, we'll move on to the next uh, question. If there's nothing from the audience, uh, we'll move on to our next uh, question from Facebook. Uh, this is from Mark in Hamilton City, California. First, thank you to those on the panel who help experiencers deal with what happened to them. Yeah, you can clap. That's, that's good. <laughs> Uh, my question is, are instances of abductions increasing or decreasing? And secondly, are they changing in nature? So whoever's keeping track of the stats here. Okay, Mike Stevens. Um, are they increasing or de decreasing? That's a interesting question because it's always based on are they being reported. Uh, so that's a huge fluctuation in the numbers. We'll never have an accurate count because we all never know the true number. But are they changing? Yes, I believe so. They're moving away, it seems, from the more physical abduction-type style we're used to into 
uh, more spiritual, non-physical encounters. We're encountering more and more of those type encounters. It's funny. It's almost like the person who said, uh, you know, the UFOs are becoming more, in a manner of speaking, kind of spiritual or less material or whatever. I don't know. Interesting. Okay, uh, any other comments on uh, Mark's question? First question? Okay, well, the second question is, are they changing in nature? Are the abductions changing in nature? Okay, uh, all right. I guess so. uh, okay, all right, Marina. Um, this is just kind of my personal overview of what I've seen and what I've connected with. I sense that um, they're changing. Maybe it's what I want to see, um, that they're changing more spiritual and um, less fear is happening. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm seeing, and that's what I'm the other people that I've connected with. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Okay. Um, Phyllis, the one word that I might add to that also is maybe willing on the part of the experiencer, whereas in the past often we hear accounts where um, that is not always the case. But I've been hearing more accounts lately of people's experiences being willing, their their willingness is there in the experience, an openness, different kind of openness maybe on the part of the experiencer. And Kristen? Yep. Um, I can add that my experience was um, to get information. Mine was inside the craft not so much the outside. And I was visited by a being that I knew was not human to give me information about where I was on my journey. Like, I reached out to find out, not with any expectations of how I would get this answer. And, um, you know, it told me certain answers, where my mission was, why I was doing things. So... Okay, th- th- this raises a number of philosophical questions. Th- th- Mark asks an interesting question here. Is it benign when something comes, regardless of the reason or the purpose, is it benign when something comes and takes you out of your home or your bed or whatever without you agreeing to it? That's just, that's just a question. Does anyone in the audience have a comment on Mark's question, which I think is very interesting? Okay. I guess I do. I'm Kirk from Vermont. And um, the free organization that uh, Edgar Mitchell set up, has been doing a lot of surveys of experiencers, and they uh, they show their data in pie charts. And uh, they just had one pie chart up that if you could stop your experiences from happening, would you? 70% said they wouldn't, and just 30% said they would. All right, very much. Thank you, Chris. Okay, uh, we have, uh, that's, uh, you really got him going here now, and we're going <laughs> to, well, go to Bill. All right, so just a few minutes ago, Ken Owens got up and uh, asked me about the documentary I'm doing, uh, Abducted New England, and, and I really don't even know if it's a documentary. Truly, it's just a collection of stories about people who think they've been abducted, and I've been lucky enough to actually um, talk to, I would roughly say, about a 100-ish people who have had uh, this kind of experience, and I have looked for patterns, and this is more of a statement about what I found by talking to these people. Um, I found patterns that seem to be developing, and one of the most interesting patterns is a skin issue. So, like, uh, I would say 98% of the people who I've talked to that have really, I'm going to say traumatic 
experiences by uh, being abducted have had skin issues after. And uh, the three people that, is, that are in the documentary all have this. And, and I think that is really intriguing for me because that means that they are having physical manifestations from this this account, this 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 incident, and it makes it more real. It makes it like okay, these people are having this in common, and, and they all have this common thread of what happened to them. So I, for me, that's really really important. And I I don't know really how to answer the the true question because it's just so open ended, you know. Because like we don't, just like he said, you know, we don't have everyone that has these experiences coming forward. So in order to create a hypothesis on, on what's going on, you have to have more information. We don't have enough information to do that. All I can do is take what I've learned from these people, try to find these patterns, and try to develop a, a, my own uh, hypothesis about what's going on. And, and as far as if they've been uh, changing, I don't think so. You can look uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, people have seen lights in the skies forever. And they're not doing anything different from the times that you see pictures drawn from 1600 of lights in the skies to now. There's still just those lights in the skies. They're not any different. You know, they're not they they're not doing anything different. So uh, I I don't think they're really changing at all. I think more people are just coming forward and talking about what happened. Okay, okay thank you. Uh, uh, we're going to pass the uh, mic to Andy Kitt just and then we'll get, we'll get to a guest uh, who is uh, at the microphone. I just want to point out that the word abduction implies taken against your will, and that cannot be benign. There, there, there is no benign way of interpreting you are being taken out of your house against your will. But at the same time, as Kirk pointed out, uh, the post-event interpretation is like, yeah, I was taken against my will, but... I gained something from this, and people's ability to learn and to develop based on these experiences is a separate issue. Is it benign? No. Is it beneficial? At least some people find that it is. Okay. Uh, yes, Marina. Um, there's something that I've always felt that um, I know it feels like it's against our will for some people, but I feel like on a, a higher consciousness level, we may have signed up for this already. Um you know, when I say that, it's it's very deep truth for me. Um, so on the physical level, our mind, we can't wrap our mind around what's happening and why. Um, and maybe we, it's very uncomfortable for us because it's the unknown. But on a subconscious level, it's what we have agreed to. And almost to the point of, um, you know, we could dive into the rabbit hole of parallel realities here. And um, maybe it's, even our higher being, our higher self, or our soul family, galactic family, um, connecting with us and working with us from another level. So it's kind of just opening up our perception that way. I just wanted to say, so when you say, I guess even just the word abduction, I'm glad you brought that up, Annie, because it has such a negative connotation. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have been taken physically against our will, but consciously we may have agreed to that. So, um, Kristen, um, I agree with what you say. I mean, as a psychic medium, I never really thought if it was an abduction or I was taken. I knew I upgraded from a 4D level to a 5D, and I didn't know where I was supposed to be going with that. And I just reached out, 
and one thing fell at like a year prior I heard Starseed and then it led up to a year later me being on a craft and getting this information and knowing the answer immediately. Okay, we have a question from the audience. Take it away, Yes, sir. I'm Jonathan, and I'm relatively new to all of this, and I'm thinking about the time equation. And when I think about our experiences changing from a, from a, uh, a Facebook question, well, in the last 50 years or in the last 400 years, well, I have to believe that the extraterrestrials are really old. They're much more advanced than we are. So they've been doing this for a long time. Well, why in their continuum would they change something in five years? You know, I can't believe that now maybe our experience of that would change as humans evolving in just what we know, maybe a 10,000-year window as we're growing and advancing. But when I think about the time-space continuum, it gets really confusing to me. I think Jonathan brought up a very interesting point by using the word advanced. Now, we're always hopping on this. What do you mean by advanced? Do we mean technologically advanced? In the 1930s, who was the most advanced country? Nazi Germany. How'd that work out? You know, So... I personally think that I'd much rather deal with a civilization advanced morally and spiritually than I would with one advanced technologically, because it can't be trusted, in my opinion. Any comments on that? Okay. And we'll go, well, which one should we, okay. We'll certainly go to Carolyn here. Um, yeah, what I was going to mention, too, uh, in regards to the abduction changing, I think that the further you go back in history, the more... Um, common it was for people to talk about spiritual encounters or sightings or uh, I don't I don't think I've ever read anything about an abduction from you know the 1500s or something like that but um, in our modern era just as uh, Paul was mentioning the Nazis were way ahead of us and the traumatizing abductions in my opinion are done by our own people or other advanced extraterrestrials who are conducting genetic experiments here. And myself as a biologist, when I hear abduction stories, it reminds me of when you take a rat out of the cage or you take the fish or you take the frog and you test it and you're looking at stuff and then you put them back in and you tag them so you can track them. It, to me, it just sounds like these traumatizing events are, to me, like a an experiment that I've seen and conducted myself. And I, and I, But I also have had my own personal experiences that are not like that at all and did not make me feel like I was a lab rat. Um, and those I felt were connected to some, whether it was an extraterrestrial or a being, or I, I have no idea, but it was not like these traumatizing events that people are talking about. And um, so I think we need to look at the possibility that some of this is done by our own human people on Earth and and differentiate between... Is it a human military abduction? Is it a an experimental abduction where maybe some extraterrestrials are based on the moon or somewhere here on a military base? And then per- perhaps a third component that is more spiritually advanced and benign and are trying to help us uh, on our spiritual path. And we are being kind of tripped and stumbled by our own people and people working with those who are conducting experiments here who perhaps are just mining our genetics. That's just a... An idea. Hi, I'm Pat. Um, I think that there are many different races that are coming here. Um, 
It's been said that uh, we're near a portal, a galactic portal. I mean, even here on Earth, um, if you look at the ley lines of the globe, um, there are spots on the Earth where the electromagnetic energy is higher, and maybe they are able to come in that way. But I think that it being so many different beings, um, whatever their agenda is, um, some speculate that we are partially genetic experiments and so I think with that respect that it's not that the abductions um, you know are like purposely bad but it's that we aren't considered the way that um, like Carolyn said that if we're doing an experiment on another being here on earth um, we don't consider how that being feels or um, even ask its permission for the experiments that we do. Thank you. And Bill has a comment. Um, yeah, this definitely is just a comment. First off, I want to say I really enjoy the panel that's here right now because we all have very different views of what uh, aliens and alien abductions and, and all of this really is. But, you know, for me, I look at facts. I started off as like a Bigfoot researcher. And in my world, you have to have DNA to prove what you're saying is, is out there. There is no other way to do it except for DNA and through science. So I took that and brought it into this whole UFO thing. And so I started researching about really facts. And uh, it really, for me, started uh, with Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley, back in, uh, I believe, the 20s, uh, did some magical stuff in New York. And he said he opened a portal, whatever a portal is, because I still don't know what a portal is. He said he opened a portal and this being called Lamb came through. And Lamb looks just like what we see today, today as a gray. And he actually drew this thing in every report after his encounter has been that same thing. He says he opened this portal and let these creatures in. Is that true? I don't know. But that is a fact that everything after Aleister Crowley saying he opened this portal and he drew this picture of Lamb, everything after that became a gray that he had drawn. So uh, how much did that influence us as far as what we're seeing and saying is uh, an alien. You know, there happens to be one person in this room that uh, I believe was abducted, and I don't think that that one person can tell you what that creature looked like. And those, to me, are the most important abduction stories because who's to say something from another planet is going to evolve to look like us or even look like that gray? You know, it's living in a complete different environment, and our environment sculpted us. The earth sculpted our two eyes, two nostrils, two ears. Who's to say another planet wouldn't sculpt something that looks completely different than us? Maybe even that ball of light people were talking about? Maybe that's the extraterrestrial. Okay. Any other comment here? Yes. This is, Phyllis, this is a bit of a departure from what Bill was just sharing, but it gets back to your question about what is advanced. And the, the um, example you gave about Nazi Germany, at the time when Nazi Germany was in that state of material advancement, of course, it was on the heels of the First World War. So Germany was involved in two world wars with very different outcomes. The first time, of course, Germany was vanquished, um, and it was just as insular and self-concerned as its history had pretty much always been both before and 
and after its states had united in the late 1800s. However, after the Second World War, there's an enormous difference in Germany's character in the world as a nation, and it's really paradoxical to me, and I'm only sharing this because I spent so much time in this history in my own research. Um, at the time that the um, Nazi regime gained power, there was a total focus on real imbalance, you know, really leaning heavily into dominance. You know, if, if there was going to be a world a future, it was going to be a world future dominated by one point of view, one perspective. When Germany came out of the Second World War, it became the most open receiving, one of the most open receiving cultures on the planet. That's been tested in the last four or five years, but still, it has this amazing resolve to do with what it calls Gerechtigkeit, which is human rights. So much so that if I'm accused of a crime, my face is still blotted out until it's proven that I'm in fact guilty. And they're much more welcoming of other cultures in the world. But the way that that happened was many different cultures, primarily the allies combining together, people working together. And when I think about this, I think about what you shared in your presentation yesterday when you were asked kind of what the hope is for some of the dark forces we're having to struggle with, many of which we don't understand still. And, and we all kind of agreed in the room that it's love. It's this power of love and human goodness and that will to work together toward those things. So I just wanted to sort of wrap up with some of those thoughts. Oh, thank you, Phyllis. Well, we are covering the bases today, aren't we? Okay. We have a question from Ben, not my Ben, somebody in Brandon, Durham, UK. Does anyone on the panel, uh-oh, we're on the spot now. Does anyone on the panel agree with Paul and Ben that even if disclosure comes, we will not be able to trust it? <laughs> All right. Just with the background of that is we're always harping on the idea that, uh, what, I'm in trouble now. Oh, I'm so, okay, very good. Just essentially, that uh, who, who believes what the government says? And if they, if they come out with something, it's going to be incomplete or untrue. Not to be cynical, but I think that's probably what gonna, the thing might uh, be. So I guess just about everybody wants to speak. So we'll start with, with uh, uh, I'm sorry, Carolyn. Sure. I, I am really, really old. So. That's okay. okay. That's all right. I had tuna fish for lunch. The mercury is affecting me already. Um, yeah, I totally believe that they're pushing a partial disclosure narrative, and it's not based on any of the insiders' reports, but just from my own experiences with things I've learned from my dad being a DOD contractor. I really believe that they are going to start with some disclosure on 9-11 and the pedophilia rings and Antarctica and they're going to slowly work their way up towards introducing us to some extraterrestrial species um, but it's not going to be the full truth, the whole truth and it's going to be everything but the truth <laughs> it's going to be everything but the truth um, and I believe that we were just looking at um, uh, a report yesterday I posted on Facebook about they were they're actually on, uh, I think it was NBCnews.com, they had a whole article on giant caverns in Antarctica. 215 miles by 20 miles is the largest one, and they're starting to disclose all that. So it is coming, and they're, you know, you know the next thing is going to be, oh, by the way, while we were looking through these caverns, we found ancient technology, and oh, by the way, there were bodies, and oh, by the way, but it's going to be the way they want it to come out, because they've already been down there for a decade removing all the really cool stuff. So they're already spinning it, and but 
if you haven't seen that, there is an article that just came out on NBCNews.com, and they are disclosing that they found huge underground caverns in Antarctica. So we'll see what comes next. Oh, I don't know who is that. Yeah, so I, I think you just need to look at the track record that uh, you know United States government, or really any government, has. I mean, especially if you look at foreign policy, how many times we've been repeatedly lied to in so many cases. Uh, of course, now we, there's a lot of people in this country and around the world who distrust the the media that's owned by these same kind of powers that are pushing this. So I think people are going to increasingly have more distrust for sort of things they hear. And even if they do hear, you know, some sort of disclosure, people just aren't going to buy it. It's just going to be, there's going to be so much distrust as it is, and we're seeing such a polarization that everyone's got their own sense of reality and what's truth and what's objective. So I think the, as the division of our society goes, less and less people are going to be willing to accept some sort of overarching kind of uh, thing that's being pushed by uh, establishment and the, the mainstream legacy media. <laughs> and Andy Kidd has a comment. First, uh, trust is a function of the individual, not the government. You trust them. So you tell me, are you going to trust them? Uh, the bottom line is they've done untrustworthy stuff for a long time. But can you trust the information? It depends how they divulge it. If they sit there and say, wow, there's three alien species, and they put them on a stage where I can meet them, wow, I'm going to believe that. If they tell me there's three alien species and don't, there's no presentation of the actual beings, I don't know what to do with that. I've been lied to so often, I don't... How do you address that? Well, you wait and see again, and allow... Dis let's, let's see how disclosure occurs, and judge the, the event by the actual items disclosed, and what you know the actual evidence is. Okay, Valerie has a comment. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, for me personally... Um, it, it's not about trusting the government or not trusting the government. It's about my own personal truth and my own personal experiences. And I believe, you know, ghosts are real. I believe, you know, ETs are real. And that's what matters. So if there is disclosure, it's going to be like, yeah, you're telling me something I already know. <laughs> you know, thanks. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's not, disclosure isn't something that's important to me. Okay, Kristen. Um, I agree with her. I, um don't watch the news. I don't listen to any of that. When I was on this, I knew I was supposed to help change this world to a better place. So I went and researched different um, types of aliens. I called out to them. I found the ones that would help me do my mission. And I just said something, read something, and then it just happened. So I'm sure that's not the common way people go about this. But that's basically what happened. Okay, anyone else on that uh, lively topic? Okay, Steve LaPlume. Yeah, I had to sit and think about how I was going to formulate this without getting in trouble. <laughs> All right, so as you know, after I, after I left the service, I did some Merck work, and uh, I worked for various governments and entities. I wouldn't trust anyone, and that's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my, my experience is nothing like Steve's, but uh, there are some similarities, and I have to agree. Uh, I think there, there are so many good-hearted people in this field, and they want to believe good things. And I want to believe good things. But when it comes to disclosure from the government, they might be a little naive, I think. On the other hand, well, not on the other hand, but in, on another level, 
are we sure it really is the government? I'll give you an example. Now, Ben and I, are, with some of you, are all working on uh, flap areas, as we call them, triangles, window areas, as John Keel called them. Uh, Alec was talking about the one in Pennsylvania. Don't forget that really in our society, uh, for better or for worse, it all comes down to bucks, really. Think of the, techno- the money you can make from the technology in private industry of harnessing principles we call paranormal. You know, whatever those may be. We, most of us believe we've seen those. Um, we always run into what looks like the military. Even bases and underground bases that we've seen with our own eyes. Photographed, etc. But is it always the government? In the uh, Litchfield Triangle case in Connecticut, we started, Ben was 13 years old. We've been working on it that long. That and the haunted policeman of Vermont was, uh, were his first two cases as a uh, young lad. And we ran into, in 2009, 2010, there were gr- ground troop movements and they didn't care who knew it in this area. And our theory is that you, you want to find out how a window area works, if, if that's what it's about. And if you want to harness it for military technology, wouldn't that be nice? You know, make it appear that you can manipulate space and time in the face of an enemy. Good grief. Then they would have to be where the intersect points are. Or it could be commercial. It might not, not be the government, or it might be both. So these are just things, I don't know if anybody has a comment on that, but there may be more to it than just the government releasing any kind of information. You know? Okay, well, we are coming down to the wire here, and uh, Ben is going to let us know here. Uh, ben is a man of no words today, but he sends his best to everyone. we got ten minutes. Uh, I want to give everybody just a quick chance to go around the room and tell us uh, your website uh, just very quickly or wherever people can find out more about you. And if someone does have one final question, you're welcome to step up to the mic. But in the meantime, why don't we sort of begin with Carolyn and uh, tell us about uh, where the people can find out more. Okay. Uh, yes, I have a website. It's Lakes Region Disclosure Support Network dot com, and we're also on Facebook. You can search the same name, um, and we pretty much ha- are holding monthly meetings in Guilford. Um, they were at the library, and you can get the events and time and date for those on Facebook um, or the website. Okay, Pat Lewis. Um, you can find uh, some of my work on patlewisillustration.com. And um, throughout the years, it's only mostly been about science fiction. Um, but I'm also on Facebook, uh, Pat Lewis, and you can check me out there. Yeah, you can just check out petakovmedia.com or on Facebook. So that's P-E-T-A-K-O-V Media. So if you have any cool Bigfoot encounters or anything like that, live in the New England area, maybe you want them documented, I'd love to listen to your encounters. If you want to learn more about Champ or Lake Monsters, Loch Ness Monster, uh, just search me up on YouTube, and I've got lots of documentaries and things on the way. So follow me on Facebook to stay tuned. And thanks again for having us here this weekend and for this panel. It's been a lot of fun. Okay. I have nothing. <laughs> I'm not a researcher. I'm not on social media and kind of reclusive, and I'm just here to support Paul and Ben. <laughs> um, just Google Bill Brock, and you'll get hours and hours of reading enjoyment. It's kind of just ridiculous at this point. Like, I've Googled myself, and it's page after page. But if you really want to contact me, follow, find me on Facebook. That's the best way. It's really my main source of social media. 
if you want to contact me, the easiest way is to actually contact Mike or Val, and they'll give me the message. Uh, I will say, though, that right now we are working on, I've just acquired the URL, KRI.Center, and we hope to be having that website up. Uh, we hope to be having uh, some stuff up on YouTube. Uh, we do have a Facebook site that Mike and Val can tell you about, but we're trying to expand out into the Internet more and... Uh, provide some of our presentations that we have at this center on a more international level. And Valerie, um, you can find me through the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies on, on Facebook or meetup.com. Um, I'm also an author. You can find more information about my author and um, my books and presentations and things on Facebook as well under Valerie LaFasso. This is Mike. Um, you can go to granitesky.org. Um, there's also a Facebook page. You can link from the website or just search Granite Sky on Facebook. And um, all our calendars are there. And we hold 90% of our monthly meetings right here at the KRI Center. Um, you can email me at kcapucci78 at gmail.com. Or I have some upcoming galleries and paranormal events with Karen Tatro. And her address is www.catro.com. This is Phyllis. Um, the easiest way to connect with me on a variety of social media would be simply putting in the words The Munich Girl, which is the title of my novel. Um, you can find author profiles at Amazon and also at Goodreads, but the easiest way is just put in the title of the book, and that will give lots of access, including to my blog. This is Marina Rose, and you can find me on my website, Marina Rose, but it's with two N's, M-A-R-I-N-N-A-R-O-S-E.com, and you can find me on Facebook. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, so very well. Uh, this panel was really great, varied views, many, many different opinions, and that's kind of what we want. Yes, we have uh, our good friend, Susan Spooler. Please step up to the mic, my dear. We have our New Greater New England UFO Conference, October 5th and 6th in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Our website is newenglandufo.com. We've had Carol Rock in the past. We're having um, Alexander Petrikov. We've had Steve Lapoom in the past. We've had Bill Brock. Steve, um, Mike Stevens will be there. And we'll have a lot of amazing, amazing guests. Don't forget those two weird guys from Rhode Island. Yes, of course. And Paul and Benino and um, Mark D'Antonio will be our keynote speaker. Outstanding. And uh, since we're plugging the, the greatest paranormal conferences in New England, uh, I certainly want to mention, uh, uh, Steve, you want to t anybody want to talk about the uh, the Exeter Conference on Labor Day weekend? Certainly the Exeter UFO Festival. I believe this is the 11th year. And it's up there, but uh, we'll be there, and many of you will be there as well. Just starting to schedule the speech. That's right. So uh, we're looking forward to that, and it'll be here in only a few months. Um, we, we have we, there, there's an, an email question. We're pretty much pretty much out of time. How many, what do we got then? Five minutes? Okay. Maybe something to think about. Uh, this is someone who um, let me get the thing back here. Was asking. I can't believe that, this is in response to the first question. I can't believe that no one on this panel has had personal experiences. Now that's not what you said. Uh, the question had to do with people seeing Bigfoot and UFOs together. So I will have to qualify this. But um, you have all had some kind of experiences in some way, or another, whether it be on the scientific level or up. So we just wanted to sort of correct that in the minds of the, this this viewer. So uh, we'll leave that as it was. Thank you for all for writing in who did. So let's. Um,
talk about our website, Ben and I, uh, Father Son Team. We've, this is our tenth year on the air. You can find out more about the show, us and our combined good grief. Sixty years of paranormal adventures are behind theparanormal.com where you'll find nearly 800 hours, if you have the time, of uh, free recorded shows for both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. So uh, I'm supposed to ask Ben what's in the fridge for next week. However, he's busy running the board here. Uh, so next Sunday, uh, June 3rd, we'll welcome author and consciousness researcher Anthony Peake Anybody ever heard of Anthony Peake? Because he is really spectacular. You've got to tune in next week. He's going to talk about the doors of perception. And he has had the gall to write a sort of a sequel to Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. Anybody with that kind of cheek, as they'd say in his country, deserves to be on Behind the Paranormal. So that'll be next week. Uh, the week after that, on June 10th, uh, we'll bring you our 10th anniversary show, a two-hour special. Joining us will be uh, Shane Searway, who was unfortunately unable to be with us today, uh, Alexander Andrew Petikoff will be uh, with us on the uh, panel, and uh, Charles Credo, and that will be on ON 1240 Radio, our, our station headquartered in Northern Rhode Island. And uh, we still have a minute or two, don't we, Ben? Uh, approximately two. Two minutes. What do you do in two minutes? Okay. Has, no, uh, no more jokes. It's not funny. Uh, anybody in the audience here has who has not had any kind of paranormal experience, put your hand up. You've never had any kind of paranormal experience. You should be ashamed of yourself. Okay. Your mother was a paranormal. Okay. All right. So, and you are still interested in the subject. Well, well, good for you. Keep searching and keep seeking. And again, I want to thank our panel and our wonderful audience for this great show today. Okay. Okay, and I want to say, again, uh, check out our website, BehindTheParanormal.com, and also we have uh, NewEnglandGhosts.com, which has a lot of the very strange case histories that we've assembled over the years. And uh, we have uh, our books are, uh, just as a bit of shameless self-promotion, our books are on sale down in the, the depths here behind the auditorium, and uh, we'll certainly be happy to talk to you at that point. Uh, we have another book coming out next year. Actually, I do. Uh, it was all happening before Ben was born, so he sort of, this way I get to dedicate the book to him, okay? So he's not a co-author. Uh, called Dancing Past the Grave, the working title, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Para Poltergeists, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds. A lot of the stuff we talked about yesterday in our talk. That'll be coming out from Shipper sometime next year. We'll keep you posted on that. So in the meantime, um, we got one minute still? This is this is terrible. I, I, I don't know what to do with one minute. <laughs> However... Um, but once again, uh, please tune in next week. We're going to have some great, uh, a really great guest, Anthony Peake, and then our 10th anniversary show after that. And we're going to start a new show format uh, with the, some of our open line shows. We have Shane Searway, a very popular uh, guest co-host. Uh, Steve LaPlume is a guest co-host frequently. And we're going to have panel shows. Not as many people as we have here today, and not on location, but uh, we're going to have a varied panel of probably four or five other guests to come in and answer questions from listeners and just have discussions. People tend to really like that and we think it's going to, we're going to be on to something when it comes to that. So um, there we are, 30 seconds. Let's keep, keep going. So that's going to start, pro we're going to do that probably once a month on Behind the Paranormal. So we're going to, we'll let you know exactly what the schedule will be. And again, check everything out at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, as I say, there are almost 800 hours of shows. If you're an over-the-road trucker, you've got it made. We've actually had a guy who said he drove from Chicago to L.A., listened to us all the way. He must have had a, needed to see a shrink after that or had a headache. <laughs> But um, he seemed to enjoy it. Okay. I'm Paul Eno, and that's Ben. I'll speak for him.
Thank you very much. See you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.